You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We have been walking through a series called Christ in the Old Testament. What we've been trying to show is that all of Scripture is important. And in fact, all the promises of Scripture find their fulfillment. And Scripture says they're yes in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have looked at Adam and Noah, Abraham and Melchizedek and Joseph. And so today I want to invite you to a couple of places. Uh, Go to Exodus 29. We're going to plant ourselves there this morning you like to be ahead, go ahead and mark John chapter 1. But I wanted today, I haven't done this through this series, but I want to give us a quick recap of where we have been and what we have seen so far. So first of all, we saw a man who was going to be the representative of all mankind. He was going to be the one to stand in for them. And Adam was going to then pass on God's blessing to everyone that would follow after him. Problem is, Adam failed in the garden. He rebelled, and instead of passing on blessing, Adam then passes on sin and death to every person that followed after Adam. But we saw that God had a plan. One day, God sent a better representative who passed the test in the garden. This better Adam, or often this second Adam he's referred to, he took our sin, suffered our death, and endured our judgment so that he could then pass on forgiveness and life. And we saw how through Adam, Jesus is seen through his life. And then we looked at Noah. Years later, God looked out over people and he saw the wickedness that was in their hearts. And God was going to wipe them out from the face of the earth. But he chose to show grace to Noah. And through Noah, mankind was not wiped out from the face of the earth. There was a remnant that was pulled out, saved through Noah, that later, new life in a new earth, he was able to experience. And so through the ark, God saved Noah and his family. God used Noah to show that there would one day come a better Noah. And through Jesus Christ comes salvation, not only just for one family, but anyone that would call upon the name of the Lord. And we saw those those types of Christ through Noah. Then we looked at Abraham and Isaac, where God calls Abraham and he makes him a promise of land. And he promises to bless Abraham. And remember, he looked at the stars and he says, you will be the father of many nations. But there was a problem. Abraham didn't have any sons. And Years later, God, through a miraculous birth, gives him a son named Isaac. But then one day, God told Abraham to take that one son to the top of a mountain to do something unthinkable. And he says, I want you to put him on the altar and sacrifice him. And as Abraham tied his son up, laid him on an altar, he raised the knife, looks over and there's a ram that's provided. And God said, stop, for now I know that you love me. And we saw that through Abraham's life, that thousands of years later, there's another baby born in a very miraculous way. And this baby grew up to be a man that would one day make a journey up a different mountain. And on that mountain, he was laid upon a different altar of the cross. But the difference between that son Isaac 
And that man, Jesus, was his life was not spared. The blow of death was not withheld from that son. But at that mountain, we looked up and can say, Now, now I know that you love me, Lord. Well, then you remember the most unlikely of people. In fact, many people came up and said, I had no idea this man was even in Scripture. And we looked at Melchizedek. Remember, he was the one that held two offices. He was a king and he was a priest of a pagan nation of Salem. And we saw through the life of Melchizedek where he would go and make sacrifices for people and intercede for them as their high priest. But then Jesus comes into the world years later and Jesus is that perfect balance between king and priest. Remember, he's the lawgiver, the protector, the ruler. He is our king. But he is also that friend the counselor, the one that can sympathize with his people as that priest. And Jesus fulfills both of those perfectly. Then last week, it was the most colorful of all people. Remember, he's the one that is the star of the flannel graphs. He was the one with the colorful outfit, the one the brothers despised. Joseph is sold into slavery, but everywhere Joseph was, he was faithful. And God blessed him. We saw that moment where uh, he is before his brothers and he just cannot contain himself anymore and he reveals himself. And they're terrified that they're about to uh, receive their brother's revenge. But at that moment, instead of giving revenge, he forgives them. And we see Joseph as that forgiving prince. But years later, there comes another prince Uh, that rises and gives up his place of honor, and he goes to the despair of our sins. And this prince takes our sins as if they were his, and he lays down his life for those that hated and despised him, just like Joseph. But instead of getting his revenge, Jesus becomes that perfect forgiving prince. Well, today I want us to see our next type of Christ. Today we're going to look at probably the most well-known person of the Old Testament. In fact, you could probably say he's the biggest person of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the life of Moses. I mean, I grew up in the era of, of, you know, the Ten Commandments, watching that when they would roll it out on a, a Sunday evening. But we're going to look at the life of Moses. And there are so many similarities between the life of Moses and the life of Christ. In fact, probably... If we were to add them all up, Moses probably has more than any other. So I made, I haven't done this yet, I just made a quick list. Here are some of the ones that I noted about Moses and Jesus. Moses was a baby laid in a basket of reeds. Jesus was a baby that was laid in a manger. Moses had to be hidden from Pharaoh. Jesus had to be hidden from Herod. Moses carried God's message to Pharaoh. Jesus brings God's message to the world. Moses was not wanted by his own people. Jesus rejected by his own. Moses led Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Jesus leads us out of slavery from sin. Moses is said to be a leader, a prophet, and a judge. Jesus is a leader, a prophet, and will judge the sins of the world. Moses delivered the law to the people. Jesus fulfills the law for his. Moses prayed and Miriam was healed from leprosy. Jesus healed lepers. 
Moses, he chose 12 messengers, one from each tribe. Jesus chose 12 men to be the messengers to the world. Moses prayed for the miracle of manna and quail. Jesus performed miracles of feeding with loaves and fishes. The dividing of the Red Sea took place under Moses' command. Jesus walked on water, and the storms obeyed his commands. We see Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai to hear God's word and deliver it to the people. Jesus, on another mount, delivered the Beatitudes and God's commands. Moses took hold of a serpent in the wilderness. Jesus will one day cast the serpent into the lake of fire. Moses saw the glory of God. Jesus reveals the glory of God. God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses. Christ is the prophet that God promised and is even greater Moses. You know, there's so many ways in which God used Moses to draw our attentions forward to the man of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to look at one particular thing about Moses. When I began studying a couple of weeks ago and a lot over this past week, I have never seen what I want to share with you this morning. As you can see, there's a lot of similarities, but I want to pull out one thing that happens in the life of Moses and the Israelites. But I'll begin this way. You know, we all love to be blessed, and hopefully we enjoy sometimes being a blessing to other people. Now, by nature, I know this will surprise some of you, but by nature, I'm a pessimistic person. I like to refer to myself as a realist, but pessim- being pessimistic is what I've been told a lot of times. You give me a new idea, and I'm immediately going to go and start at the negative. Now, I can get there, but I'm going to come up with all the things that I already see wrong with what's about to happen. But slowly I get there, but usually I'm a, a pessimistic person by nature. Or you could say half glasses, half full, half empty. But I think a lot of us... We can be that way. We can probably look at our lives a lot of times the way is the glass being half empty. You know, it's easy to look at our lives and to focus on all the negative things that are going on around us, things that are not going well. So several years ago, I was really convicted about this. And so what I did was I said, okay, I I need to change some things about me. I, I need to make sure because what happens... Man, if I get into that, that dark tunnel of things that it's hard for me to come out and I know that affects everyone else. So every day, I said, I'm going to write down five things that I'm thankful for. And what I did was, some days it was some really big things that I noticed. Some things, it was just the simple things. And you know me, there are two things that, that I love. I, I love brand new pairs of socks. And I love to be the one that opens the peanut butter jar and gets to pull the seal. Because there's just something about that. I know that's weird, but it's just sometimes there were days that that's all I had, okay? I'm thankful for a pair of socks and some peanut butter. But what it did, it caused me to really begin looking and focusing on no matter how bad the day was, no matter matter how uh, dark that day seemed to be, that if I looked close enough, I could find a blessing in there somewhere. So I I took those five things, and and this would be a challenge. If you find yourself, and maybe you're in a a pessimistic mindset a lot of the times, or you just feel like you're in that dark tunnel, 
Start today or start tomorrow. Say, okay, every day, five things. Maybe do it as a family. Say, all right, we're going to go around. We're going to list some things that ways we have been blessed or, or that we can bless others. And what I did, uh, I posted it because I needed some accountability. I posted it on social media. And it was interesting watching the other people that would then chime in of five things they were thankful for. But, you know, we love this idea that we want to be blessed and hopefully we want to be a blessing to others. But there will always be things in our lives that are difficult, out of sorts, situations that cause us stress, but there can always be a blessing to be found. What I learned is that there is always going to be a blessing somewhere. Even in the darkest of moments, the darkest of days, there's going to be a blessing. But if I had to ask you, what is the biggest or most profound blessing God could give you. I wonder what the list that we would make. You know, it might be a financial need. Maybe it's a family need, a psychological need, a physical need. We'd probably all say that, you know, sending Jesus Christ down the cross, that, that's the biggest blessing that, that God could give us. And I would say, yes, that is a blessing that is hard for us to imagine. We can never earn it. We can never deserve it. But in sending Jesus Christ down the cross, it was actually the means of God bringing about the most profound blessing He could give us. And that it caused and it took Jesus Christ doing that to actually bring us the biggest blessing, the most profound blessing that we could ever imagine. What I want us to do today, that's what I want us to discover in the life of Moses. I want us to see what is the most profound blessing God could ever give us, and we'll see it from him. So last week, so you're hopefully in Exodus 29, find your way there to verse 45. So Joseph, remember last week, was a young man who his brother sold him into slavery. And was actually, uh, God was the one that was directing all that. Remember that phrase where he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he looked at his brothers and he said, I know this is what you were doing, but I see now that God was using all of that because he had a purpose for my life. He wanted to use me to save people and to save a, a country in a nation. Well, what happened is years later, Joseph's father, Jacob, died. But they continued to live in Egypt. Remember, Jacob had his name changed to Israel, and Israel had 12 sons. She had more than that, but we see from him comes the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were living in the land of Egypt. And during this time, God did something. God continued to bless the Israelites, and they were reproducing like crazy. All of a sudden, the Egyptians are looking around, and there's a few Israelites over here. The next day, there's more and more. And I mean, they were just uh, having birth, and children were being born. And all of a sudden, the Egyptians were looking at this going, how is this happening? Where are all these people coming from? And God was using them in the life of the Egyptians. Well, you know, it made Pharaoh, it made him really nervous. A new Pharaoh comes into power. He sees the Israelites. More and more of them are coming. And all of a sudden, he gets nervous. So remember, he puts out the decree that every male uh, from two down, uh, they would go in, and that's how they were going to control the population of the Israelites. Well, from that time, they were put into uh, slavery. They were used as a labor force. And this is where we now have the life of Moses. You know what happens? Moses is born. His mother is 
uh, wants to save his life, so she puts him in the basket. And remember who finds him? It was Pharaoh's daughter. She takes Moses in, and, and Moses is raised as Pharaoh's grandson, and he is educated. He is given a place of power and honor. Then Moses one day sees an Israelite being beaten. And he has realized that he is an Israelite himself, and he can't take it anymore. So he takes things into his own hands, and he goes, and he takes the life of that Egyptian. Here's for his life, and so he runs into hiding. He's there in hiding, and you remember how the story goes. All of a sudden, there's a burning bush. And God speaks to Moses through this bush, and he says, Moses, you are the one that I'm going to use to go back to Pharaoh so that my people can come out and worship me. And he's the one that's going to lead the Israelites out of bondage from Pharaoh. So he goes to Pharaoh through several plagues. Finally, Pharaoh allows them to leave. And Moses leads the people through the parting of the Red Sea, through the wilderness where they come to Mount Sinai. And it's here on this mountain that people are told something. They're told, do not touch this mountain. Do not come close to this mountain. Do not let one of your animals touch this mountain. Because if you do, you will die. This is now a sacred place. But Moses, Moses is allowed to go up and to hear from God. And it's on Mount Sinai that God speaks to the people. And he delivers the Ten Commandments, his holy law. So in Exodus 29, we're going to see the most profound way God could ever bless his people. So Exodus 29, let's look at verse 45 and 46. He says, I will dwell. I will dwell among my people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell, or your Bibles might say, tabernacle among them, and I am the Lord their God. So of all the ways God could bless us, and I know you're sitting there and you're like me, you're thinking, man, there are some things I need God to bless in my life. There may be a physical need, a family need, a psychological need, a physical need. There is something I need for Him to do. But the greatest and the most profound blessing God could ever give us is one that He would be our God. He says, of all things, that is the biggest blessing that you need is for God to be your God. But it also says, and that He would dwell among them. The biggest and most profound blessing that God could ever give us is that He would dwell among us. Man, there was a time that the world got to experience this fully. If you remember all the way back to Adam and Eve, that they were there and God walked with them and He talked with them. And But it was because of the rebellion, what does God do? He removed them from His presence. He kicks them out of the garden, and they lost that tabernacle, that dwelling of God among them. But in His mercy, God does something for the Israelites. The Israelites could not come into God's presence fully because of their sin. But in Exodus 25, 8, He provides a way for them to know Him. So that we see this, this blessing in Exodus 29. And if you were to go back just about four chapters, you would see that Israel was a nomadic people. And in Exodus 25, 8, God gave them some instructions of a tabernacle. And this tabernacle was to be built in a certain way. He gave them the instructions. Everybody had their own job. And it says in verse 25, 8, 
And it says, And let them make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. So here's the setting. They had this tabernacle, and it was to sit in the middle of wherever they were. It could be moved, and you had certain tents, and if you were to read through it, it was amazing how particular they had to be. There was a certain person that could touch a certain thing. They had to roll it up and tie it a certain way. And they could move this tabernacle wherever they went. And wherever it set, they were then to establish their places all around this tabernacle. And this tabernacle was the center of their lives and of their worlds. And the glory of God would be at the center of that tabernacle which in fact was then at the center of their lives. And in that holy of holy place, they could not go in, but they would cast lots, and someone of the high priest would be chosen to go in to be a mediator between them and God. But this tabernacle was to be at the center of their lives, that God was dwelling with them. The most profound blessing is that God would be their God, and that He would tabernacle or He would dwell among them. But the people are wicked. They're sinful. And as Moses goes up that mountain, they begin to focus on all the negative things about their life. They become hungry. They get thirsty. Moses isn't here anymore. Is he even coming back? In fact, they even plotted to kill Moses. And they were even willing to go back to the slavery and the bondage of Egypt at that time. And they turned their backs on God and went back to the evil idol worship that they had been involved in. So what does Aaron do? It's so strange. Aaron takes all of their gold and it says that he takes it and he puts it in a fire and it says that he fashions, he makes, he creates a golden calf. God knows this is going on. He tells Moses, he says, Moses, the people down there, they've already turned. You're going to go down, and they have made an idol for themselves. They go down, and Moses says, Aaron, what have you done? You know what Aaron says? He says, I don't know. Threw this gold in, and all of a sudden, he says, out came this calf. He wants nothing to do with this. Moses is upset. He is distraught, and he throws the tablets down, and they're broken. But through the disappointment, Moses still loves the people. I mean, they are ready to take his own life, and they're ready to hightail it and run it back to the slavery where they were. But look in chapter 32, verse 32, and I want you to see what Moses says, and I want you to see the love that he has for his people. Exodus 32, 32, he's come down off the mountain. He is is disturbed. He, He is disappointed. And this is what Moses says. He goes before God again, and he says, But now, if you will forgive their sins, God. But if not, or he says instead, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses says, I am willing to give up my salvation for them, for that stiff-necked, for that rebellious and those sinful people. I'm willing to give up my salvation for them. You know, years later, Paul does the same thing. And I'm telling you, that is a love for the people that Moses offers his salvation in the place of the people. And so God hears this compassionate plea. And I want you to see what God does 
in chapter 33. So we begin in chapter 29. We've now moved a few passages up to chapter 33, verses 1 through 3. And this is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, and I, I want you to notice God's perspective and, and how it changes about this. Notice his focus. He says, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. And you see God changing something here. And he says to the land which I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob saying, to your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. And here it is again. But I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God says this, he says, listen, I will. I will forgive their sins, and I will not blot their names out. In fact, I'm even going to give them the land that I promised that is flowing with milk and honey, meaning I'm going to give them the land of blessing. But do you see what's missing he says, he will not dwell with them any longer. He is removing his presence from them. You know, I've often wondered, I wonder what hell is going to be like. You know, I, I know that, that I, I no longer have to worry about that, but I've wondered, what's, what's it going to be like? And I've read the scriptures like you have where it talks about, you know, fire and, and torment and, and darkness and and sometimes I'm not for sure how it all fits together, but this I do know about hell. That hell will be the complete absence of God. And here we're starting to see a, a glimpse of this. And what I want you to see is the contrast of 25.8 in verse, chapter 33, verse 7. So in 25.8, we see... And he's talking about that I will make them a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. And it was to be at the center of their lives. God says, I'm going to give you the, the promise of the land. I'm going to bring you into that, that blessing. But I'm no longer going to be where I once said. So notice what he says in chapter 33, verse 7 now. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meetings. And anyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of the meetings, which was outside the camp. So the tabernacle is moved from the center of their lives to being outside. He's no longer at the center of the focal point of their lives. He is moved to the outskirts of it. God says He's still going to offer to be their God, but He is removing the most profound blessing from them, His presence. They still have the advantage like access, a mediator, God's protection, a guarantee of the promise of land, but they lack God's full presence in the center of their lives. And the sad truth is that God has given them precisely what many people today want out of religion. This is kind of what we want. We, we want, we don't want, you know, 
we look at this and we do not want to lose all contact with God. But we prefer that he not actually really be at the center. I want him, but I kind of need him over here. You know, we like God's promises. We like having access when we want it. We even like having someone to do a lot of the heavy lifting for us. We love the guarantee of a land of a flowing with milk and honey that will one day come that is called heaven. But we often get a little uncomfortable. No, we get a lot uncomfortable with God at the absolute center of our lives. Because to have God at the center of our lives seems a little too close. That we have Him at the center of our lives might mean that we would change how we live. We might choose spend our money differently. We might choose the things that we're involved in, that we may do some and we may not do others, if He was actually at the center of our lives. We like having Him close. We don't want all contact broken. And we like being able to go to Him when we need something. And we we even like a mediator to kind of go and do all of the heavy lifting. But it really makes us uncomfortable to have Him at the center of everything that we do. Because, man, all of a sudden, maybe we won't fit in like we do. And maybe that would change the things. So I wrote down this. Where in my life do I need God's presence back at the center? Where do you need God to rightly dwell again? Maybe in your marriage, your finances, or in your parenting. I've had that this past week. Man, I realized there were some things that I was doing. Man, it was hard going to one of my children and confessing that. But what it was, it was there's an area of my life where God isn't at the center of that. And I need His presence there. I think often we've gotten too comfortable with just God being on the outside. The greatest blessing that God could ever give His people as He dwells with them. And because of Israel's rebellion and sinfulness, God has removed the most profound blessing of His presence with them. It, it's still over there, but it's not at the center where it should be. But He left them, and He actually leaves us a promise. Deuteronomy chapter 18, which is really a recap of the things that have already happened. It's a retelling. But in verse 15, it says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And God says, one day I'm raising up a better Moses. And what is this better Moses going to do? So turn to John chapter 1. Beginning at verse 6. It says, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to this light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him and believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here it is in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among them. And we have seen His glory and the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's what I want you to see and to take today, is that Jesus comes as the better Moses, to once again bring the most profound blessing that God could ever give His people, that He came to dwell, He came to tabernacle with us. God had removed the most profound blessing from Israel by removing His presence from them. And Moses climbed up a mountain and he allowed to, and he was allowed to see just the back of God's presence. But the people were not allowed to see that. But years later, another Moses named Jesus climbed to the top of another mountain called Golgotha, called the Place of the Skull. It was on that mountain that He would make it possible for us to one day see the full face of God again. But it took Him, it took Jesus, God's beloved Son, having to endure the full weight of God's presence being taken from Him. In fact, that's what Jesus, when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was at that moment that God fully turned His back on His Son and totally removed His presence from Him. And why? It's so that you and I could receive the most profound blessing of having God's presence restored to us. You know, the only way you and I will ever get to experience God's most profound blessing is to believe and to trust in the better Moses, Jesus. And so the question today is, do you believe? And if not, man, I I ask you to go to God and ask Him, God, is this true? But if you do, if you believe that, is God at the center of your life? Let's pray. Father, on a rainy, even sleepy morning, the great thing that we have is your truth, your spirit, and your people. And Father, today, as You have shown us in the life of Moses that you used him in a mighty way, but ultimately you were using him to point us and to draw our attention to one that was even better than him. And as you used Moses to deliver your people from the bondage of of slavery in Egypt, you have used that better Moses to deliver us from the bondage of sin. And Father, it took... You sending your son up to a different mountain to endure that moment that he had to experience what it was like to have your presence totally removed from him. And I know that we could never imagine the the weight of that and what that meant and what it felt like that he had to endure that. But as your children, we want to say we believe and we trust in that. And what he did, that that's what makes it possible for us to experience your presence again. And so, Father, I want to pray for all of us today that if there is an area of our lives that you are not at the center again, that we would call out to you that we want you in every aspect of our lives to be at the center, 
that we no longer want to settle for you being on the outside, that we can just go to when it's convenient, that we can have you close by, that we want to acknowledge that we need you at the very core of who we are. So, Father, it's in your Son's name, by the power of your Spirit, we can ask all of these things. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.